issues you ought to avoid. It's true on a personal level. For example, if you've observed that your wife is looking more and more like her mother these days, you ought not say that. And if you've noticed your husband as he ages acts more and more like his unbearable father, don't go there. Those things may be true, but they are too hot to handle. The same is true for whole cultures. I thought of a whole list of these, but I won't go through them. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, they're just everywhere. Hot things in different cultures that you just dare not touch. Well, for the Jews of Jesus' day, the Sabbath was one of those. Not that you couldn't talk about it. Well, you could talk about it. But you dare not question the traditions that surrounded it, which were many. The late Alfred Edersheim, himself a convert for Judaism, from Judaism, wrote, The Pharisees laid the most stress on the observance of the Sabbath. On no other subject is rabbinic teaching more painfully minute and more manifestly incongruous. <laughs> Sabbath observance was in Jesus' day and is in our day as well in some circles the hottest of subjects. But in our text this morning, Jesus just wades right in and addresses this hot issue head on, and so we must too. Let me read it. Luke 6, 1 to 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawfully only for the priest to eat, And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Before we begin to talk about this, let me uh, uh, say a couple of things. First of all, I want to pointedly acknowledge my indebtedness to others. You don't launch into a study on the Sabbath without ha- having lots of help. And I'm especially indebted to Dr. Tim Keller. I found a couple of uh, sermons of his on this text, and I must tell you, he brought great clarity to my thinking that, uh, that I've not had in, in the past sometimes. I hope that you hear echoes of his work in mind, although I will seldom quote him directly. Then, so that you don't get lost, let me explain how we're going to proceed. We're going to start off kind of talking about the whole of this passage, but to the extent that we divide it up, we're going to talk about the second part first and then come back to the first part. 
Now, underlying this whole account are two issues which caused all the great controversy. First of all, the Pharisees did not properly understand the Sabbath. And then secondly, the Pharisees did not properly understand who Jesus is. And those two issues then give us two points. The first being this. Sabbath keeping never wins God's approval. Sabbath keeping never wins God's approval. You know, these days the whole notion of a Sabbath rest seems like an antiquated uh, idea to most people. I mean, everyone knows that in the 21st century, life is on 24-7. It's going. The idea that everything could just shut down for a day seems absurd. Why would you give up a seventh of your productivity? Why would you give away a seventh of your profits? Only the most rigorous religious zealots would even try. But the truth is, a Sabbath rest is God's gift to us. In case you haven't noticed, people are tired. Not just because we get a third less sleep than people used to get a hundred years ago, but because our work now defines and consumes and drives us. We may have a shorter work week, but we have so many other things we're trying to pack into that time. And the fact that we compete with others who go full speed seven days a week, we must too. In a recent edition of Breakpoint, Mark Early noted, We Americans are starved for rest as never before, getting an average of just six and a half hours sleep a night. To make up for it, we rev up on Red Bull, Starbucks, no-dose, sodas, you name it. No wonder people are craving the physical and mental health benefits of a day of rest. But since the creation, God designed a Sabbath rest for his people. He does not intend for us to be harried like the world is. He did not make us to be workaholics. As Psalm 127 reminds us, In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And in countless other ways, he grants us a Sabbath rest. So don't get the idea as we go through this text that Jesus is against a Sabbath rest. That's not true. The Sabbath is one of God's greatest gifts to his people. But when the Sabbath is misunderstood, it becomes a snare to the soul. And that's the problem Jesus encountered here in Luke 6. The minute that we begin to believe that keeping the Sabbath will win us God's approval, well, then many questions immediately arise. Well, what day is the right Sabbath? Is it Saturday or has it changed to Sunday? And what exactly does it mean to keep 
the Sabbath. What is allowed? What is forbidden? And does the work which is forbidden include uh, making a sandwich for lunch or does it only include uh, uh, turning on the stove to cook something? And when does the Sabbath begin? Does it go from morning till evening or from morning till the next morning or from evening till the next evening? And if I'm not to travel, how far am I not to travel? And if I can't mow my lawn on Sunday, could I pick up one dandelion that I noticed on my way to church? And if I'm required to go to church, how many times do I have to go to church? You see, if Sabbath keeping is a means by which we gain God's favor, then we've got to pin down exactly to the detail what it means. This was the problem Jesus encountered in these two incidences because Sabbath keeping had come to be seen as a way to win God's acceptance. The rabbis had carefully defined the details of what Sabbath observance looked like. So when Jesus and his disciples walked through the grain field and picked some grain and ate it, the problem was not that they walked through the field and picked someone else's grain. The law allowed them to do that. The problem was what they did with that grain. For according to the Mishnah, the teaching of the rabbis, there are 39 specific kinds of labor which are forbidden on the Sabbath. Things like carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, and 20 more. So those Jesus, so though Jesus' disciples simply walked through and grabbed a handful of grain and rubbed it in their hands and got rid of the chaff and ate it. According to the official categories of Sabbath keeping, the disciples were reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food which made them at least quadruple violators of the Sabbath law. We see the same kind of concern for details in the, the second incident, the healing of the man with a shriveled hand. According to the teaching of the rabbis, there were only three situations in which medical attention could be sought on the Sabbath day. If a life was in danger, if a baby was being born, or if it was the eighth day and a circumcision had to be performed. But when Jesus encountered the man with the shriveled hand, None of those applied. That man had lived with it for years. His life was not in danger. So it was considered unlawful for Jesus to heal him. He could just wait another day. Why? Because when we think of, this, of Sabbath keeping, as a way to win God's approval, we're going to become sticklers about the details of the rules of what constitutes true Sabbath keeping. And by the way, it's not just true of the Sabbath. This is the problem with the whole law. Zeal for the details of the law flows from a false notion that by keeping the law we will gain God's favor. That's exactly wrong. That's man-made religion. That's not the gospel. And that's where Israel went wrong. 
That's why they rejected Jesus. Oh, they had a zeal for God, but it was not a zeal based on truth. Paul Ochtemeyer offers wonderful insights on this in his study of Romans. I've been reading Romans and, and appreciating his insight. He says, the Jews thought the law pointed to the contributions they had to make to their relationship to God. They're very religious. And, and, and that's the issue. They wanted to be religious enough that they could become partners with God in this matter of their salvation. God chose them and now they're going to prove that that was a good choice by becoming a very religious people, deserving by their religious goodness what God had given them by grace. He goes on, the tragedy is that such zeal for goodness and godliness is in its own way a subtle form of rebellion, of idolatry. It means that we're unwilling to submit ourselves to God and to trust that he is good enough and strong enough and well disposed enough to uphold our relationship to him. Instead, just in case he may prove less reliable or less generous than he claims, it would be good for us to have something of our own to fall back on. Oh, how we want to think that our relationship with God is due in some small part to our own religious value, our own worth in God's eyes. And in that moment that we think that way, the sin of idolatry has flared up in our life. And God has once more been rejected as God. And that's true not of the whole law. It's true also of Sabbath keeping. Keeping the Sabbath will never win you God's approval. You see, the Sabbath was not given to us as a way of salvation. It was given for people's refreshment. Tim Keller summarizes its purpose like this. Sabbath was about restoring the diminished, replenishing the drain, and repairing the broken. If that's true, then Jesus healing the man with the shriveled hand was perfectly in keeping with the purpose for which God gave the Sabbath rest. So why was Jesus rejected for that? Because the Pharisees would not accept that their approval before God was all of grace. Instead, they busied themselves trying to establish a righteousness of their own making and condemning anyone who did otherwise. And that's not my assessment. That's what the Spirit of God says in his word. But Sabbath-keeping will never do that. It will never win you God's approval. So what will? That brings us to the second point. Come rest in Jesus. Come rest in Jesus. 
As I said at the beginning, the Pharisees in this account have two problems. First, they misunderstood the Sabbath. That's what we've been talking about. But secondly, they fail to understand who Jesus is. And that's what we're going to talk about now, returning to the first of these two incidents. In verse 5, Jesus clearly identifies who he is and what his role is. He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now that statement has two parts. That Jesus is the Lord and that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's talk about the first. Jesus is the Lord. When the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of doing what was unlawful on the Sabbath, Jesus shot right back at them with a word of rebuke. He says, have you never read what David did? These were the scholars of the law. They had read. But he's acting, he said, you're acting like you've never read what David did. And then Jesus brings up an incident in the life, an incident in the life of David recorded in 1 Samuel 21. David, who had already at that point been anointed as God's uh, chosen king, uh, uh, was running from King Saul, who was jealous of him and sought to kill him. David and the men with him became hungry one day, and uh, so they went to the tabernacle, which was at a place called Nod, and uh, there they asked the priest for some food. But all the priest had was the showbread, which was displayed before the Lord in the holy place. Nonetheless, the priest got it and gave it to David and to his men, and David ate it, contrary to the stipulations of the law, which only allowed the priest to eat that. So what's Jesus' point here? Surely he is not saying, though I read some people who thought he was saying this, well, they were hungry. So if you're hungry enough, then you just go and say, I don't care what the law says. I'll go ahead and eat the holy bread. It doesn't matter. I'm hungry. No, that's not what's going on. It was not about how hungry David and his men were. It was about who David was. David was the Lord's anointed one. He was engaged in the Lord's service. And therefore, the scripture never condemned him for what he did. So Jesus says, if David could violate the letter of the law without violating the spirit of the law, how much more could Jesus, the Lord's anointed one, doing the Lord's work, allow his disciples to violate the letter of the legal requirements as the rabbis defined them? Oh, but you see, actually, Jesus is much more than David ever was. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. In the previous chapters, we've seen Jesus making such great claims. He claimed to be the Lord's anointed one, the fulfiller of Isaiah 61, the one who would set captives free and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He demonstrated his power over the host of Satan, casting out demons. He showed himself the Lord who could reverse the curse on the world and heal people. Most recently, He claimed the authority of God himself to forgive sins. And most recently, he claimed that in him, the age to come had already begun. In fact, throughout the Gospels, he makes even greater claims. He says that before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be the eternally existing Jehovah. He claimed to be the judge before whom everyone will give an account on on the last day. He claimed the authority to give eternal life to whomever he chooses to give it. He claimed that even if he were killed, he would rise again on the third day. And he did exactly that. Make no mistake, this Jesus is the Lord. 
we confessed it this morning as we talked about his ascension and read from Ephesians chapter 1 that he has been given all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given not only the present age and in the age to come. And even as Jesus calls himself here the Son of Man, the Son of Man is Lord. That sounds so humble to us and he is humble, but it also is a claim to lordship for Jesus here is referring throughout the Gospels what he calls himself Son of Man. He is referring to Daniel's prophecy. Let me read what Daniel prophesied concerning the Son of Man. He said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Sounds like the ascension to the right hand of God, doesn't it? And he was given given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Make no mistake, Jesus is not even just like David. He is David's greater son. He is the Lord. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, the son, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here Jesus lays claim to the Sabbath rest. He owns it. He is sovereign over it. He can do with it whatever he pleases. He is the Lord of it. So what is Jesus pleased to do with the Sabbath? Well, he tells us exactly in the Sermon on the Mount, actually, as he talks about the whole law. He said he did not come to abolish, but he did come to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the Sabbath rest, to bring it to its perfect consummation. In fact, in Matthew's account of these incidents about the Sabbath, that becomes even more even clearer. For in Matthew's account, these incidents follow immediately, next verse, after Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he talks about these Sabbath incidents. Jesus became our perfect Sabbath rest. Or as one person said, in Jesus, the Sabbath has changed from a day to a person. Now, this is not something I made up. This is the teaching of the whole Bible. Remember when God sanctified the seventh day in the creation? He created for six days. And it says, on the seventh day, God rested. And declared the Sabbath day holy. What does that mean, that Jesus rested? Surely God didn't get tired. He's God. He doesn't get tired. No, the rest which God entered on the seventh day had to do with the perfect completion. His satisfaction with his work. He looked at it all and he said, it's good. I'm satisfied. I'm finished. I'm finished. Now that's the kind of rest you and I can never get. Well, we can get more sleep. We can take a day off. 
But we cannot still the deep groaning in our souls. We cannot do enough to make our creator accept us and delight in us. We cannot reverse the curse that our sin has brought that destroys everything. We cannot make ourselves at peace with God and with his creation. But you see, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And as he hung on the cross carrying our guilt, he bore the deep groanings of our souls. He too felt abandoned and restless and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then when the debt was paid, he cried out, It's finished. And in his finished work, not just in the creation, but in our redemption, we are given Sabbath rest. That's how the book of Hebrews speaks of it. Talks about the creation rest, and then he says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And who enters it? Hebrews 4 3. We who have believed enter that rest. Oh, make no mistake, Jesus did not just change the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday and everything else stays the same. No, he radically fulfilled it, filling it with himself. That's not my idea. That's what the scripture teaches us. Colossians 2 says that concerning not only the Sabbath, but all the other special days. They are, I quote, but a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. He is our Sabbath. You see, like the Pharisees of old, you can rigorously observe a Sabbath day. But in the core of your being, still have no rest. Only in Jesus is there true Sabbath rest. And that's not just one day in seven, but every day for all eternity. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism says, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his spirit and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. Come, rest in Jesus. At the beginning, I acknowledged Tim Keller's profound influence on my thinking about this text. I want to conclude by quoting an important uh, statement that he makes that I, I want you to hear. He says, there are two spiritual paradigms. In the one, the moral law, that's like the Ten Commandments, the law of God, is a burden. It enslaves you. In the other, that same moral law can be a blessing, a gift which leads to flourishing. These two different paradigms are religion and the gospel. Now most people in the world believe, if there is a God, we relate to him by being good. All religions are based on this principle. If I perform, I'm accepted. 
But Christianity is not only different from that, it is diametrically opposed to that. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel of Jesus says, I'm fully accepted in Jesus. Therefore, I obey him. The gospel is not like religion. Religion is, I give God something. Then he owes me because I'm a good person. Christianity is, God through Christ Jesus gives me complete salvation which I receive by sheer grace and then gladly, gratefully live for him. Now folks, that's how we must understand the Sabbath. If we are thinking about the Sabbath along the lines of the religion paradigm, the Sabbath becomes an occasion to perform and to earn our acceptance, our right standing before God. And of course, uh, to do so, we must focus on all the details of that, of what exactly are the regulations, for it's in the keeping of all the details that we can assure ourselves that we've done enough, that we're better than others, and that we deserve to be saved. But folks, by Sabbath keeping, we'll never get there. We'll never win God's approval. Ah, but if we understand the Sabbath according to the gospel paradigm, then the law of God is there to show God to us. To show us the Savior who lived a righteous life in our place. Who died to take our, the, the punishment we deserve in order to give us his right standing before the Father. What matters then is not so much the detailed requirements of all the regulations of the ancient Mosaic Code. What matters is the unfolding story of God's grace. Of how God who created us brings us finally into his rest. And then when we respond to Jesus' invitation to come and rest in him. The law, though it could never make us holy. The law helps us to know what it means to serve him. Not that we can earn God's acceptance, but having been graciously accepted, we'll know how to live. Dear people, this is a distinction. That's a difference between life and death. Religion would take you to your grave without hope. Even after diligently keeping the Sabbath all your life. But Jesus will give you the true Sabbath rest, though you do not deserve it. Simply because you come to him and rest in him. That's the gospel. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for rest. Oh, not just for a day off. Thank you that you and Jesus have finished all that was necessary for our salvation. So that in the midst of all of our frailties and all of our failures and all of our questions and all of our confusion, we can rest in you and learn to live for you. Learn to deal with you as a loving father, not as an angry judge. Oh, we thank you for the gospel. Well, keep us from distorting it and making it into man-made religion, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.